So I'm <coughs> filling in for the excellent Winnie who has had to leave us tonight. So I'll offer some words in her stead. I wish I could channel her, but I haven't developed that ability. So here we are. <coughs> the uh, texts that make up the, the Pali Canon, which is the collection of, of all of the uh, Theravada Buddhist texts, is called, uh, collectively, it's called the Tipitaka. And that word's, word is translated as the three baskets. And so it's in these three parts. The, there's the Sutta Pitaka, which is the collection of discourses that are attributed to the Buddha and a few of his closest disciples. And then there's the Vinaya Pitaka, which is the collection of uh, texts that concern the rules of conduct for the monks and the nuns. And then there's the Abhidhamma Pitaka, which is the, the Buddhist psychology, which is a detailed analysis of how mental and physical processes function and how they interrelate. And within the collection of the suttas, there's a bunch of things. And the fifth division of it is called the Kudaka Nikaya, which means the collection of little texts. And the ninth book within that is the Terigata. And the word Teri comes from the same root as Tera in Theravada. And uh, Theravada means way of the elders. So a Teri is a feminine uh, word and it means female elder and gata means verse or song or poem so the teri gata is a collection of poems of the women elders who were there <coughs> around living at the time of the buddha and it's a collection of 73 poems that are uh, they're called enlightenment poems uh, they recount uh, the struggles and realizations of these women uh, along the path to enlightenment and like the rest of the Pali Canon, the suttas uh, at least, were preserved orally for several hundred years before they were written down. So we have these uh, poems because they were memorized uh, by the Sangha. And I, I really love these poems. They're, they're simple, but they have this real beautiful honesty and this quality of being very straight from the heart, I think. And we have some stories about some of these women there's not a lot of information, but uh, it gives us a glimpse into what it was like at that time and uh, makes it quite real and human, I think. And although some of the stories are a bit formulaic and have a, a sort of legendary or mythical quality, um, they, they also really, for me at least, they connect, connect me to the lineage that we come from in this tradition. And the practices they were doing are the same as what we're doing now, and that's revealed in these poems. Uh, so I find it very inspiring and a real reminder of our own potential as we follow in the fo footsteps of these uh, remarkable women. This past summer, I had, uh, I had the good fortune to spend some time in a part of India called Ladakh where I had been 15 years ago. And it's, it's politically, it's part of India, but it's geographically more part of Tibet. And it's uh, kind of behind the main Himalayan range. It's quite high, dry country like Tibet. It's, the low parts are at 12,000 feet. 
uh, elevation and it goes up from there. And parts of it at least are drier than the Sahara Desert. So the people who live there, are, they're tough. And they speak a dialect of Tibetan. Ladakhi is very close to Tibetan. And most of the people living there are, are uh, Tibetan Buddhist uh, by, by their tradition. And I went with a group of friends. Two of them are nuns who live in Burma. They're ordained as Theravada uh, nuns in Burma. But uh, one of the nuns and a friend of hers, they're from Switzerland, and they've been supporting a small nunnery in a village that we trekked into. It's quite remote. It took us uh, five days, I think, to get there. Uh, other people go a little faster than we went. The locals <laughs> could do it in half that time, probably. But we crossed five or six high passes to get there, um, close to 17,000 feet at a couple of times. And uh, we were coming down. We could see the nunnery that we were making for. We were going to spend some time there. And one of my friends uh, was going to be teaching a little meditation retreat. They wanted to learn uh, vipassana meditation. And we could see the nunnery. And the nuns were all lined up waiting for us. And they all had katas. It's a ceremonial offering cloth. And they treated us like noble guests and some of them gave up their rooms for us and uh, you know they're unbelievably poor and they have nothing but they were so generous and there was such a simplicity to their their faith and um, just this quiet dedication that was very inspiring to be around for me and I also think in in Burma I go almost every winter I help with a meditation retreat at a monastery in Upper Burma that I mentioned in another talk. And I also work with a couple of small uh, humanitarian aid groups there. Um, one of them is organized through a monastery where, where one of these nuns, but actually two of these nuns are living. And we're supporting through them uh, some small nunneries nearby. And I got to visit them last winter. Um, and they're living very, very simply, but they're, they're just wonderful to be around. There's a purity of heart there that's palpable. And there was one of these nunneries that uh, the women had, um, it was two sisters actually and a few others, and they had gotten it together so they could have a real intense practice period. They'd set up everything and, uh, and then the cyclone hit and uh, there was this sudden need to take in orphans. And so they suddenly found themselves with 10 or 12 orphan girls who became little miniature nunlets. <laughs> and uh, I have a wonderful picture of one of them with her cat. It was the most chilled out cat I've ever seen. It was like, you know, she could do anything with it. It was such a happy beast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so they had to give up their, their practice plans and, and take care of these. And some of these little girls, these orphans were four or five, so they might be there for quite a while. And um, there was no sense of, of any feeling that they were, that this was a burden for them. It was just, okay, this is what's happening now, and this is what we need to do. And part of what we do with one of the aid groups that I work with is to, um, is to support three nunneries up in the Sagaing Hills in Upper Burma. 
and so every year we make donations to about a hundred nuns at these three small nunneries and at one of them there's a Dalyuzana is a friend of ours she's kind of the head she's not the most senior but she's the most um, she runs the place in a lot of ways and does a lot of the teaching she's the most uh, studied and practiced of them and uh, part of the idea of the money we give is to support their study so they have more time and don't have to be going on alms round quite as much. And so this year she reported that she had completed her Dhammacharya uh, examination and had her Dhammacharya degree, which is a big deal. It's like a, a master's or a doctorate and she would have memorized vast amounts of texts and uh, done a huge amount of study to do this. And it's very difficult to pass these tests. And she was so happy to report this because she said every year now for 12 or 14 years, we ask how things are going and she's had to work at it slowly, slowly because she's teaching and taking care of the older nuns there. So I just find um, there's a grace and a dignity and this quiet faith that these women present that's and their dedication that makes mine pale in comparison, I think. And it's not easy for them in these places because they aren't given the same respect as the monks and there's some very deeply entrenched traditions um, where the monks get more support. And in the Theravada tradition, the women can't take full uh, nun bhikkhuni ordination. It's said that 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 lineage was broken. And so there they can only take 10 precepts. Although recently some nuns, there's their signs, hopeful signs, and there are some, some ordinations starting to happen, but it's quite controversial. So tonight I'm gonna share a few stories and poems from the Terigata. Um, and I used a book called The First Buddhist Women by Susan Murcott for my reference for most of this, and some from an, uh, some directly from the suttas, and uh, it's excellent. It's an excellent book if uh, you're interested in reading more about some of these women at this time. So the first story I want to tell starts at the time of the Buddha's birth, or before he was the Buddha, Prince Siddhartha, and it's the story of Mahapajapati Gotami, who was his foster mother. And it's uh, the story of the founding of the nun's lineage, the nun's sangha. So the Buddha's mother was named Maya, and she and her sister Pajapati were married both to King Suddhodana, who was the head of the Sakyan clan. And uh, when the Buddha was born, his mother died just seven days after his birth. And so his, uh, his aunt uh, raised him. She took him as, as her first son and raised him uh, cared for him. And then he left home at the age of 29 to begin his spiritual quest. And he didn't return home at all during the, the years of his uh, search and his austerity practice and up uh, through the time of his enlightenment in Bodhgaya under the Bodhi tree. And from the suttas, it appears that his father requested him to come home some time after that, and he returned home sometime in the year following his awakening. And uh, 
he went back, the, the, the town was Kapilavattu, and it's in uh, right near the border of India and Nepal, southern Nepal probably. And apparently he received a fairly cool reception when he came back there. Uh, his wife, uh, former wife Yasodhara, didn't greet him herself, but she sent their young son Rahula to meet him. But uh, for her part, his stepmother, foster mother Pajapati welcomed him as did his father. And uh, Pajapati was probably in her 50s by this time. And so it said that after, so the Buddha gave some teachings and it said that following this, the king uh, realized the third stage of enlightenment and uh, Pajapati realized stream entry, first stage. And uh, so she was known as Maha Pajapati. Gotami is the surname from same as Gotama for the Buddha. And Maha means great. And she was very respected by now in her own right uh, by, because of her age and uh, as uh, being the wife of the king and her wisdom. And so she had a lot of women coming to her for advice and support already. Uh, so she had f her own group of followers in a sense. And so it's said that a few years after this time, uh, after the fifth year, the fifth reigns after his enlightenment, the Buddha again came, went to uh, his hometown of Kapilavattu. And at this time, Pat Mahapajapati decided to ask permission for, to become a nun, to start a nun's sangha. And this would have been a pretty radical idea at that time in that culture. It was uh, very counter to the predominant culture, certainly. So she, she went to the Buddha, she approached him. He was staying among, among the Sakyans, which was his clan in Nigrodas Park at the Banyan Monastery. So she greeted him and stood at a respectful distance and she said, it would be good, Lord, if women could be allowed to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless life under the Dhamma and discipline of the Tathagata. The Tathagata was a, the Buddha's name for himself. And he was, he's referred to that way. It means the one thus gone. And the Buddha replied, Enough, Gotami, don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. And as is the uh, usual way, she requested a second and third time and received the same reply uh, both times. So she, she bowed and left in tears thinking that he wouldn't not sanction her request. So then after some time, the Buddha left for the town of Vesali, which uh, the ruins of it are still in existence, I've been there. It's near the modern, modern day town of Patna in India. So uh, after he left, Mahapajapati cut off her hair and put on robes. And she was followed by a large group of Sakyan women and she set off for, to follow him to Vesali. And she arrived, he was staying in the Kutagara Hall in the Great Grove. I like to say these names of these places. They're real places, they were. And the ruins of them are still around. So it said that she had swollen feet and was covered in dust from the road and she stood outside on the porch weeping. And seeing her standing there, the kindly Ananda approached her and said, Gotami, why are you standing outside on the porch crying? And she said, because Ananda, the blessed one does not allow women to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless life under the teaching and discipline of the Tathagata. So Ananda goes to the Buddha and he bows to him and he sits down and says, Pajapati is standing outside under the entrance porch with swollen feet. 
covered in dust and crying because you do not permit women to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless life. It would be good, Lord, if women were allowed to do this. And the Buddha said, enough, Ananda. Don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this. And again, for a second and a third time, the same. So Ananda said, thought, the Blessed One does not give his permission. Let me try asking on other grounds. <laughs> so he says, are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness to realize the fruits of stream ent entry, once returning, non-returning in arahatship? These are the four stages of enlightenment in the Theravada tradition. And the Buddha said, yes, Ananda, they are able. And he says, if women are able to realize perfection, and since Pajapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, nurse, foster mother. When your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast. It would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. <laughs> and at this, the Buddha gave his consent. <laughs> and I think he realized that uh, no was, the answer no wasn't going to cut it anymore. So then uh, Mahapajapati asked the Buddha what she should do about the, the Sakyan women who had uh, come with her, followed her there. And he said that those who wished to, to do so could, should be ordained as bhikkhunis. And so this is how the nuns sangha was first started with this group. And it said that after her ordination, um, Mahapajapati was given a meditation subject by the Buddha. He was really good at picking the, the right one for people. And she realized full enlightenment uh, fairly quickly. And it's said that she lived to the ripe old age of 120. Uh, so maybe people lived longer then. And uh, she, had, she became a, a teacher of, uh, of the other nuns as the Sangha grew. So I'll read her poem. Her, her poem uh, speaks in praise of the Buddha and refers to uh, wanderings in lifetimes in samsara. And it recounts her own realization and the ending of the cycle of rebirth. So this is her poem. <clears throat> Homage to you, Buddha, best of all creatures who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood. The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother. Knowing nothing of the truth, I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body, and I will not go forth from birth to birth again. Look at all the disciples together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. Maya gave birth to Gotama for the sake of us all. She has driven back the pain of the sick and dying. So there's a number of poems in this collection by some of the nuns who were disciples of Mahapajapati, or in other ways, they were directly connected with her. Some of them are by uh, some of the nuns who followed her from her, her home <coughs> when she became a nun. And I want to read one of these poems. It's by a nun named Vadesi. And she had apparently been um, Pajapati's nurse and attendant when she was the queen and had come with her to uh, when she came to the Buddha to start the nun's order. So this is Vadesi's poem. 
It was 25 years since I left home, and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I went up to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure, and I know the minds of others. I have great powers and have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So this poem, it's kind of incredible. She, this 25 years without a moment's peace, that's some real dedication uh, to continue to, to practice given that, uh, that struggle. And I think the, the specifics of the practice, <clears throat> it's interesting to see the specific practices that she was uh, working with the elements, earth, air, fire, and water, and with the aggregate of perception are specifically mentioned in this poem. So these are the same things we're doing here. So another story. This is the story of Patachara who by, by all accounts in the reading I did was a pretty powerful personality in the community there. And she became a highly respected teacher and had many followers uh, after she ordained. But she was born into a, a well-to-do family, a banker's family in the town of Savati. And when she was grown to uh, be of marriageable age, her parents arranged a marriage to a man of similar social standing, but apparently she had other ideas, strong-willed, so she ran away with a servant who had become her lover, and so they married. This was not usual, <laughs> happened sometimes. So they got married and she became pregnant after a time, and, and as was the custom then, she wanted to go home to her parents' house to give birth. And uh, apparently her husband kind of put that trip off. He procrastinated, um, probably figured he wouldn't be too welcome back in, in the old home neighborhood. So one day when he was out, she just took off on her own. And apparently her husband followed her and found her about halfway there. And uh, she went into labor and she gave birth there safely by the road. And so uh, when she was able, they returned home together. So after a while, some time, she became pregnant again and again wanted to go home. Again, her husband was reluctant and didn't want to go. And so she took the first child, who was a little toddler by now, and set out on her own. Again, the husband followed and again caught up with her as labor was coming on. <laughs> and uh, you know, going into labor on the road was common, I guess. <laughs> so, but this time there was a big storm that came up, like last night's storm. And uh, they needed some shelter, so her husband went into the, the forest and was cutting some uh, sticks and finding, getting grass to build a hut for them so they could take shelter. And while he was in there, he was bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake, and he died. 
this is in the in the dark and so Patachara thought she'd been abandoned that he'd run off or something and and then uh, she's gone and going into labor so she gave birth there thinking she'd been abandoned and she sheltered her children from the storm with her own body through the night and then in the morning when the light came she found her husband's body where he'd been fallen uh, there after he was bitten by the snake and so she didn't know what to do. She was paralyzed with fear and grief and she stayed there for another night and then she uh, decided that the only thing she knew to do was to journey on to her parents' home. So this is a tragic story, be forewarned. It gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> so she's going along. She comes to the Achiravati River, which is there, um, still there. I saw it when I was there. But it's swollen with floodwaters from this big storm and the ford that usually is a f an easy crossing is waist deep and it's a very strong current. And so she's too weak to carry both of the children at the same time across. So she crosses with the, the newborn and makes a, a bed of leaves and grass on the far side and, and puts the baby there. And then she goes, sets off to cross to get the older child. Uh, but she's reluctant to leave the newborn as you might think. And she keeps looking back and there's an eagle and the eagle swoops down and snags the baby. So she's shouting and yelling and gesturing, trying to scare the bird. And uh, the eagle just flew off. But the other boy, the other child, the little boy, thought she was calling to him. And so he goes to the river's edge and falls in and is swept away and drowned. So it's bad, bad day, very bad. So she's in complete despair. So all she can think to do is to keep going to her family's home. And so she goes along on her journey and, and then she gets to the outskirts of the town and she meets a man and asks him if, if he knows anything of her parents. And he says, oh, don't ask me about them. Ask me about anything else. And she says, there's nothing else I care about. And he said, well, you saw how much it rained in the last nights. Your family's house collapsed and fell on them and you can see the smoke where where the father, mother, and son, your brother, are all burning on one funeral pyre. So um, at this, she, she lost her mind. She just couldn't, her grief was too intense and she went, she lost her mind with grief and she began wandering around, weeping and wailing and uh, just wandering in circles in the area there. And it said that her clothing became ragged and fell off and the townspeople tried to drive her away because she was so mad. And at this time, the Buddha was residing in the Jetavana, uh, Anattapindika's park, which is outside Savati. And so she, she was wandering around and she came up to where he was teaching. And uh, the, there was a group of monks and lay disciples and some of them wanted to chase her away, but he, he said uh, he knew that she would be able to hear him. And so he, he made them let her come closer. And when she came up to him, he said, sister, recover your presence of mind. And apparently that was enough to kind of bring her back to sanity. And then a kindly person gave her a robe, a cloak to wear to cover herself. And, and the Buddha listened as she told him her terrible story. And he said, Patachara, it is not only now that you have met with disaster and trouble. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead then there is water in all the four oceans. 
and then he continued his teaching that he was giving and and uh, her grief began to subside and by the end of this discourse her first discourse she realized the first stage of enlightenment and so she requested ordination and became uh, and joined the nun sangha and she was known as the one who was foremost in study and understanding of the vinaya of the rules uh, for the conduct of the ordained sangha so her poem recounts her struggle in practice and it also describes the precise moment of her her final awakening in a really beautiful way so this is patachara's poem when they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth and when they care for their wives and children young brahmans find riches but i've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher i'm not lazy or proud why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind in the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell. I checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. There's a, an interesting sequence that, that is often uh, spoken about or we see in accounts of people's practice where there's this period of uh, intense concentration. She trained her mind like you train a, a good horse, she said. And then there's a relaxation from that effort and then usually some kind of catalyst. Uh, in this case, it was the, the, the lamp going out that sparked her breakthrough. And as tragic as her story, her story, it almost seems too tragic to be true. But then I think of the story of Dipama. Some of you are familiar, uh, teacher of Joseph's and others. And uh, her story is, is uh, very similar. She lost her husband and two children. Uh, and she became grief stricken and was uh, took to bed, was uh, really not functioning and was told she probably was going to die. And it was at that time that she went to a monastery and, and had very, very incredibly rapid uh, progress with her meditation when she did do that. So uh, these stories seem like, you know, fables, mythical tales, but, but there's a Deepama's sort of a modern day version of, of that kind of story. So the next story is uh, about a nun, nun named Kisa Gotami. And it's pretty famous. I think someone may have mentioned uh, part of this story in another talk. I'm sure many of you have heard it, but um, I didn't want to leave it out because it is a, a very famous story. So Kisa Gotami was also born in Savati, same place as Patachara. And uh, the, her name Kisa means thin. And apparently she was quite poor. But she was also uh, a cousin to the Buddha. Her, her mother's brother was, uh, was the king, I think, or at least related to the king. So she was a poor cousin. Uh, and so the Gotami, the last name, comes from that uh, connection. So she had a good lineage, but not much money. And so she was married to the son of a well-to-do merchant. 
uh, when she was older, old enough, and she moved in with his family, but she was treated badly uh, by her in-laws, which was sometimes the, this happened with new brides. And, but then she gave birth to a son, and, and at this time she received an honorable place, a good place in the family. And so because of this, she was very, very especially attached to her young son, her little son, uh, maybe more than, than usual because he was so directly connected to her being accepted into the, her husband's family and seemed to be the key to her marital happiness. But um, sadly, her son became ill one day when he was just a toddler and he died. And the tragedy was overwhelming to her mind and, and she couldn't accept it. And she feared that she'd be rejected from her husband and his, his family. And so she refused to accept that the child was actually dead. And she began, uh, she carried him from house to house uh, to all the neighbors asking for medicine, uh, hoping that, thinking that she could find the right medicine and he'd be okay, he'd recover. And so she went all through the village and everyone told her that, that the child was dead, but she, she couldn't see the truth of it. So she would, kept going on and on. And finally, a kindly person sent her to see the Buddha who was staying again in the Jetavana grove. So she ran to him to ask for medicine. And he said he knew of a medicine, but that she had to go get it for herself and he would tell her. So he said for her to go and bring a white mustard seed from any house in which no one had died. And so she heard this and she rushed off thinking that this enlightened sage would be able to, to provide a miraculous cure for her child. So again, she went from house to house to uh, ask for a mustard seed and this was a common spice. And so many people had one to, to offer. But whenever she asked if if anyone had died in the house, she always got the same answer that yes, someone had died there. Um, and there wasn't a single household where no one had died. And the dead, she was told, are more numerous than the living. So finally with this, she the truth struck home and she came to her senses and realized that death is common to all people, to all beings. And so she carried her son's lifeless body to the cemetery and buried it there. And she returned to the Buddha and he asked her if she had gotten the mustard seed. And she said, she said to him, done venerable sir is the business of the mustard seed. And so she requested permission to join the nuns community and she was ordained. And uh, as in all of these stories, she realized full enlightenment. <laughs> these are enlightenment poems. So <laughs> there aren't any poems of the unenlightened nuns. <laughs> But her poem is interesting. There's a few of them in there that are presented as dialogues uh, between two or more people. Hers is a dialogue between herself and Patachara, uh, who was probably her teacher. So I'll read that one. So the first voice in this, uh, in this poem is Patachara's and recounting her experience. She said, on a journey near to childbirth, I found my husband dead and gave birth on the road. I hadn't yet reached my family's home. I lost both sons and my husband dead on the road, then mother, father, brother, burning on one funeral pyre. 
I have seen the jackals eating the flesh of my sons in the cemetery, my family destroyed, my husband dead, despised by everyone, I found what does not die. And then this is Kisa Gotami's voice. I have practiced the great eightfold way straight to the undying. I have come to the great peace. I have looked into the mirror of the Dhamma. The arrow is out and I have put my burden down. What had to be done has been done. Sister Kisa Gotami with a free mind has said this. Can you take a couple more? Yeah. This is a story and poem is of Mitakali. And it's interesting because she apparently she was living as a wandering ascetic uh, at the time she met the Buddha. Uh, It's not clear. There was no description of who her teachers might have been or or what kind of practices she was doing. Um, And although it was rare, it was not completely unheard of for women to to be a wandering ascetic. So she, had, she was on a spiritual quest like the, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha before his enlightenment on her own, uh, going around to different teachers. And uh, then she happened to be in, uh, around when the Buddha gave uh, the discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, which I've mentioned, others have mentioned throughout this uh, month. Um, it was given in the market town of Kamasadamma in the country of the Kurus, which is in the far, the far west of where the Buddha uh, lived and taught near uh, modern-day Delhi. And uh, apparently before she met the Buddha, she was, had a reputation for being cross, difficult, and self-centered. <laughs> but uh, I guess that changed after she heard the Satipatthana discourse. So she um, joined the community of nuns at that time and she was known for her energy and diligence. And she also uh, practiced uh, diligently and became full, realized full awakening. And uh, I love her poem. It's like Patachara's in, in that it has a very precise description of the moment of her awakening. And uh, like uh, Patachara, it came as a result of insight into the truth of impermanence. So this is Mitakali's poem. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me and I forgot the real point of the wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short, age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up and my mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So it was just in that moment of standing up that her mind became free. So pay attention when you get up. <laughs> you never know. 
So this is the story of Bada Kundalakesa. So Bada was born to a wealthy family in Rajagaha, which is uh, now modern-day Rajgir. And uh, you can see the old city walls there still. And uh, apparently she had quite a passionate nature, so her parents kept close watch on her when she grew to womanhood. And uh, one day she was gazing out her window of her family home, and uh, she caught sight of a robber who was being led off to be executed. And I guess he was quite good looking. And uh, he'd been a, a person of stature in the town who'd fallen, uh, fallen to becoming a thief. And so she, she fell in love with him looking out the window and she begged her father, I guess she kind of had her father wrapped around her finger and things. So she said, she implored him to ob obtain the thief's release. And against his better judgment, uh, her father bribed the guards and told them to bring the man to the house, which they did. And uh, he, he let them get married. And he was hoping the young man would change his ways. Because <laughs> he was, you know, he'd been a good guy. <laughs> He was a good boy. He just went wrong. <laughs> so uh, they got married. And then, uh, but soon after the robber, he became obsessed with uh, getting hold of his wife's jewelry. His thieving ways prevailed in his mind and heart. So he makes up a story about having made a promise to, uh, to give an offering to a certain mountain deity if his life was somehow spared back when he was on his way to his execution. So. He convinced Bada that she should dress in all of her finery and put on all her jewelry and led her into the hills to the top of a cliff a precipice called Robber's Cliff, which was uh, where thieves were taken. Apparently, this was where he should, would have been pushed off to when he was supposed to get executed. So he takes her there, and so he demands her jewelry, and intending to th push her over when he got it. And so Bada saw one possible way out. And so she said, let me just embrace you one more time. And he said, okay. And then she gave him a hug and pushed him over the cliff. <laughs> yeah. Quick thinking. <laughs> but uh, after this, she, she felt she couldn't face her family after she'd done this, even though the guy was asking for it. <laughs> and so she... Uh, <laughs> So she chose, chose to enter the order of the Svetambara Jains. And the Jain, the Jain religion was around, it predated the, it was around uh, at the time of the Buddha and had been around for a while. And they actually had an order of nuns uh, that was already established at that time. And so she went to, to join that uh, Sangha and she was asked what level of renunciation she wished to undertake. And she said she wanted to commit to the very most severe kind of asceticism. And apparently one of the austerities of the initiation was to have your hair not shaved off, but torn out clump by clump. So apparently when it, it did grow back and it came in quite curly. And so uh, <laughs> Kundalakesa means curly hair. So her name was Bada. The Kundalakesa was a nickname from her curly hair. <laughs> so. Uh, like the Buddha, similar, very similar to the Buddha, she mastered all of the teachings and practices there and it wasn't doing the job, so she left. Uh, and she began to wander and uh, sought out the wisest teachers she could find. 
And she, so she got a very good knowledge of all of the different philosophies and teachings that were around at that time and the texts. And apparently came, became very skilled in uh, the art of religious debate, which was a, a big deal at that time. And there's lots of accounts of the people coming to debate the Buddha and uh, other people. So she, she was into religious debate. And so she, when she would come to a new town as she was wandering in her ascetic life, she, uh, I guess this was a common practice, she would make a pile of sand and she'd stick a stick of rose apple branch in it. And if someone wanted to debate her, they would knock it over and uh, <laughs> signal that they, that was the signal to have a debate. And so she did this for years and had never met her match. She always won because she was so, knew so much and had done so much study and practice. And so one day she came to, uh, again to Savati and she, she made her, her sand pile and her rose apple branch as her usual. And at that time, apparently the venerable Sariputta, who was the Buddha's chief disciple, one of the two chief disciples was, he was staying there. And so he saw the branch and got some kids to knock it over. So they had a debate. And so Bada put her questions first to Sariputta and apparently he answered them all with ease until she had run out of questions. And then apparently he stumped her with his first question. And uh, so she admitted defeat and she asked him to tell her the answer. And instead of answering, he sent her off to see the Buddha. And uh, he saw, the Buddha apparently really saw and uh, could tell that she had a great depth of understanding. And so he gave her some teaching and instruction right away. And she became fully enlightened right then, just at that first discourse, which would be nice. <laughs> yeah, a good deal, huh? So um, she requested to become a nun and he ordained her by saying Kambada right then, uh, which is the only uh, recorded case of him ordaining a nun that way. Um, except for uh, the very first, uh, his, his foster mother, uh, he also ordained, but uh, Bada was so impressive, he ordained her on the spot. And he considered her to be uh, foremost in terms of the speed with which she became enlightened. And apparently she kept wandering even after she became a nun. And uh, her poem uh, tells of the, her austerities, her her uh, practice of austerities and then her meeting with the Buddha and then her life as, a, as an alms mendicant, as someone who wandered uh, collecting alms for their support. So I'll read her poem. I cut my hair and wore the dust and I wandered in my one robe, finding fault where there was none and finding no fault where there was fault. Then I came from my rest one day at Vulture Peak and I saw the pure Buddha with his monks. I bent my knee and paid homage, pressed my palms together. We were face to face. Come, Bada, he said. That was my ordination. I have wandered throughout Anga and Magadha, Vajji, Kasi and Kosala, 55 years with no debt. I have enjoyed the alms of these kingdoms. A wise lay follower gained a lot of merit. He gave a robe to Bada, who is free from all bonds.
So I'll end the talk with uh, one final poem. Uh, this is a nun named Sukha. Uh, it's not the same Sukha as uh, that means happy or contented or pleasant. It's spelled differently and it means uh, um, bright or lustrous or shining. And I chose this poem uh, to end because I like it mostly. It's just because I like the poem, but it's a charming story also. So she was um, also born in the in Rajagaha to a wealthy family there, and uh, it appears that uh, when she was quite young, she went where the Buddha was teaching, and he was teaching in the bamboo grove in the squirrel sanctuary. And it's still there; there are squirrels and bamboo growing there. I don't know if it's in the exact same place, but it could be. It's a lovely place with a water tank. And uh, yeah, really nice. Little aside there. So anyway, she heard the Buddha teaching and she became a disciple of his. And uh, then she was ordained when she was old enough by a nun named Damadina, who was famous for her eloquence and had a large following of uh, nuns. And so Sukha practiced uh, diligently and uh, realized full awakening in a, in a relatively short time, it's said. And uh, she, as she matured, she also became very skilled in speaking and was very inspiring. Apparently, she was considered to be her teacher's equal eventually. And she also, uh, after a time, had a large following of disciples among the nuns. And uh, it's said that one day she and her companions uh, returned back to their home where they were staying from their alms round in, in the town of Rajagaha where she grew up. And uh, when they came back, she began to give a discourse. And it seems that she spoke so beautifully at that time that her listeners were thoroughly enchanted. And apparently even a tree that was growing at the edge of their gathering place it was so inspired that it uprooted itself and went striding through the town. <laughs> <laughs> In another place, it says it was a tree spirit, but I like to think of it actually being a tree. <laughs> uh, so actually, this is not Sukha's poem. It's the tree's poem about her. And uh, so the tree wandered through the town, praising her eloquence and reciting this poem. So. Uh, this has yet to happen to me. <laughs> but uh, maybe some of the other teachers have noticed trees striding around after their discourses. I don't know. Anyway, it's a nice image. <laughs> so this is, uh, this, is Suk Sukha's, this is the tree's poem <laughs> about Sukha. <clears throat> I see the tree kind of shaking its limbs. What has happened to these people in Rajagaha? They are like drunks. They don't listen to Sukha preaching the Buddha's teaching. But the wise drink her words as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. Sukha, you are light because of your bright mind. Concentrated, free of desire, you have conquered Mara and his forces. Bear this body, it is your last. I love that stanza that says, the wise drink her words 
as travelers drink rain and never tire of their sweetness. So, may all beings drink of the good Dhamma and never tire of its sweetness. So let's sit for a few minutes and let the words fade away.
Thank you for your kind attention this evening. There's time now for walking meditation and then chanting at 9.15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.